0: Thank you. Welcome to Jodorowsky, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, mime, painter, and so much more, including director Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly. On this episode, we're looking at what is supposed to be Jodorowsky's post-Santa Sangre triumph, but turned into one of his biggest disappointments, starring Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif, and Christopher Lee. It's 1990's The Rainbow Thief. Joining me on this journey are two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Board Podcast. It's the Dina to my Prince Malegre, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam?
1: I'm pretty good, Doug. Uh, you know, chilling, ready to discuss some thieving of rainbows, some some stealing of rainbows. I, I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on rainbows generally, Liam? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh
0: I I'm a fan. Let's let's Great. say that. That sounds good. D you know, you have a child, a young child, Liam. I do, I do. And what, like the, I sometimes connect in my brain the idea, the concept of a rainbow as almost like having a childlike wonder to it. Does does your young daughter has she had an opportunity to see a rainbow, experience that in person? Uh,
1: <laughs> that's a good question. Actually, I think she's only seen one rainbow, and she was relatively young at the time. So I bet uh-huh. if you asked her now, she wouldn't remember. As far as like like cartoon rainbows. She doesn't care unless there's unicorns attached. She loves unicorns, but she's kind of um, not that interested in rainbows.
0: I was just thinking how funny it would be if I just talked to you about rainbows for like a half hour. Today. Right. Well, then, well, <laughs> and, and, and
1: then I was like, I was like, so he's going to make a turn with the rainbows. He, he could turn towards the positive, i.e., as a symbol of you know LGBTQ uh, t- t- rights. That would be great. Or right. he could go to it to a symbol of God saying, "I won't kill you
0: with a flood next time. I'll use something else." <laughs> Uh, floods will come a little bit later in this episode uh-huh, uh, with, uh-huh. with us as always on Jodowowski is our mutual Uncle Rudolph The wonderful writer-director Julia Marchesi. How are you doing today, Julia?
2: Oh, I get to be Uncle Rudolph I yeah. feel very really honored I feel great I get to wake up and talk about Jodowowski That makes me so happy
0: It makes me happy to have you here And you, what else made me happy, Julia? Getting yeah. to see the teaser for your upcoming film I know what you need which we've been talking about for a long time uh it, it you know I, it, you've been very open about you know it's a process we we were there at the beginning for the crowdfunding for the filming portion we've been there all the way through now there's something that people are actually seeing in the world I know it's been a little while at this point as of the point that we're recording this how do you feel about people's response to the I know what you need teaser
2: it got great response i was really happy um i so it's made it to look like an after school special uh bumper Mm -hmm. the concept for the film is after school special meets kind of like brian de palma-esque stuff uh and i got nothing but positive responses which is great because i always brace myself when i release anything online that i'm going to get some trolls and i never fucking do i'm so lucky like i got nothing i got not one and i was like wow that's fantastic so i felt really good about that did you guys like it
0: I loved it and, in fact, I just rewatched it again before we started recording because I wanted to make sure that it was fresh in my memory, I think I'm so excited to see the final version I I really think you know, sometimes. It, this is not a comment on you at all Julia, but I used to write a lot about uh, micro budget and ultra low budget filmmaking and. Uh, and I know that you know you didn't weren't working with a huge budget here, but you always wonder well what it's you know when I was picturing up my mind is it going to look low budget. Is it going to look cheap? I know that's a a loaded word, but it just looks so polished and nice. And and it really seems to fulfill the promise of of the material, which is exactly what anyone who would have seen it would want. Yeah, I'm really excited to check it out.
2: Thank you. Well, it's now uh, gone out to be uh, starting submissions to film festivals. So now it's just a waiting game to see where if if where it gets in. Um, and as far start. as rainbows, can I talk about rainbows for a second? Oh, please. Then? I want to
0: hear your thoughts on rainbows.
2: Because I got a rainbow story that I need to impart. Excellent. That, uh, I, there, I went to Iceland a few years ago. Okay. There's a place called Gullfoss, which is this giant waterfall where there is a permanent rainbow. So the crazy thing about it is it's really huge because it's like it ends like we're there. So you can walk f- past it and turn around and see the back of the rainbow. Right. Which is fucking amazing that is amazing.
0: Before we get into any announcements, we would be remiss if we didn't start by offering our condolences to the entire Jodorowsky family and extended family over the tragic passing of Axel Cristobal Jodorowsky on the 15th of September. I know it took all of us uh, it was a shock. It was by a huge surprise. We talked a lot about Cristobal on our most recent episode, specifically on Santa Sangre. Uh was a gifted performer, and his death um, appeared to take many uh, by surprise. He had a lot of upcoming dates for his touring, and, and uh, the Psycho Magic that he does was, uh, was still being scheduled. He posted very regularly on social media. Uh, at the time of this recording, I don't believe that the cause of death has been officially announced. I know there's been some uh, um some, some thoughts that people have had in regards to it he was only 57 years of age i just wanted us to talk about it. i don't want to put a pallor on the entire episode but it was definitely something that we had to mention uh julie i know that it was a, a huge surprise to you i think i may have been the one who unfortunately uh, told you the bad news about uh, Cristobal.
2: I, it was i yeah I, I mean you know especially because we just watched santa sangre and we you know both all of us were talking about how incandescent he is on screen, mm-hmm. you know, how he gives a performance that seems beyond what a performance can be. Uh so I think that it's fantastic that we have that always to look at, you know, uh with him. And I think that's something when Uh, a film actor dies that, you know, there is this sadness, but then there's also this, well, they're immortal forever and doing what they're doing. So that's kind of a nice thing about it. But, you know, he's so young. And then, of course, to think about uh, now Alejandro is that now he's lost two of his sons. Yeah. uh, and And to watch that as a father, and, you know, I think... He's talked about how much Teo's death affected him, and now I can only imagine. Uh, so I just feel, you know, very sad. And yes, my of course my condolences to the Jodorowsky family. It's always very sad when uh, someone of such uh, talent and and promise is taken away.
0: We uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about an episode of a Jonathan Ross program that was focused on Alejandro uh, from around 1990 or so, around the time that they were he was filming The Rainbow Thief, which we're going to be talking about today. And in that. Uh, they have an interview with Cristobal talking about his performance in Santa Sangre, And I have to say, I got a little emotional watching it, just seeing him so young and so alive. And, and it just, you know, it really so kind happy. Of, yeah. he And it just really crystallized uh, my feelings on the subject. On the day that he passed, um, Alejandro had been posting on his own social media about how sad he was and how distressed. And I didn't realize what it was connected to. I thought it might've been a family friend or something like that. When I discovered what the actual cause was, boy, it was, uh, it was- it was a really very, very sad day. I'm glad that we at least had have had a chance to talk about Santa Sangre in a way that was very celebratory and very uh, positive about Cristobal's contributions and his acting and his physical performance in particular. Uh, but if you uh, want to hear our thoughts on that, please check out our Santa Sangre episode, which was the one immediately before this. Liam, any thoughts on, on now the late Cristobal Jodorowski? I mean,
1: my brain sort of did a little bit of uh, what Julia mentioned, which is I immediately went to the passing of his brother. And mm-hmm. again, that was on our minds because of covering Santa Sangre and, and uh, that being the one uh, performance from his brother. And uh, that even came up in some of the supplemental stuff that we read and watched for... This episode uh, was the mention of the passing of his brother. So, um, you know, yeah, no father, no no parent wants to lose a child at all, and to have lost two. I mean, it is a testament to uh, Alejandro's like you know advanced age, of course, but also to me. And I guess everyone has different perspectives on this, but I think to us, probably fifty seven is it's just too young. You know, yeah. it's just it's just it to you know uh, it, it feels tragic not just because of his talent and and all the things he had going on but also just you know at that age it's it's you know it's a surprise it's not it's not like he you know was advanced and 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 we kind of knew something was happening so i don't know i it it really I, i like that we're able to uh acknowledge the the tragedy of it but it certainly puts it it makes it it made it a little harder thinking about this thing because it was on my mind and and you know I you know we don't know this person but I think we can honestly say that like his work is important and was important to us and so I don't know. It's it, it's one of those weird things where it's like I, you know, when people pass that you admire, you, it's not the same as when it's someone that you have a relationship with, but sure. there is a kind of relationship there even if they don't know that you have a relationship with their
2: work. You know. Sure. And, and he's and recently recently yeah. touched all of us with his work, right? right? So yes. it does feel yes. very fresh and recent. Yeah.
0: We're also at a very interesting portion of Alejandro Jodorowsky's career, which is that after the film that we're going to be talking about today, he will not make a film for many, many years. And in that intervening time, when we're going to be doing some episodes about comics and things like that, we're probably going to be talking about his sons a little bit more. And it'll be, you know, it will certainly color our view of of uh, talking about Cristobal in particular, but uh, that's something that we'll We'll have to be thinking about going forward. Uh, if there's any other news about that, certainly you can find that on our social media. But I'm putting some uh, some clips up, including the clip, um, the one that was most notable for me from the Jonathan Ross program is up on our uh, Cinema Small Sports social media, as well as, as my favorite clip from Santa Sangre, where he's playing the piano with his mother in that film. But uh, yeah, very, very sad. Let's get into some announcements. There have been some big news in the Jodorowsky world uh, over the last few months since we uh, recorded last. Starting with our favorite subject, the crypto bros who bought a copy of the Jodorowsky's Dune Bible, Spice oh, Dow. Yeah, forgot our favorite about these people. Mothers. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anyone predicted from the very beginning, just just to give a quick summary, these were uh, a, a cryptocurrency collective uh, got together and bought a copy of the Bible, the uh, the collection of uh, storyboards and design elements, everything that had been put together for Jodorowsky's Dune project in the late 70s. They bought a copy of it for over a million dollars. And uh, they at first seemed to think that they had the rights to make a film based on, on this without having the rights to Frank Herbert's Dune generally. And with the you know massively budgeted Dune film that came out last year, they were quickly uh, corrected on this. So then they announced that they were going to make uh, another project, some sort of potential film, based on concepts that were in the Bible, and uh, the Dodorowsky's Dune Bible, and then that seemed to have fallen apart, and now they are looking to uh, offload (laughs) this book. Apparently, they're trying to cut their losses. This is from uh, boingboing.net. The cryptocurrency collective built around a copy of Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune Script Bible will no longer be a collective and is trying to sell its Dune Bible. SpiceDAO, short for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, recently began Redemption Phase 1, a fundamental shift in its direction. After a series of setbacks and an ambitious plan for crypto-powered media studio, their group is letting people who hold the Spice token cash out by withdrawing their money for the group's, uh, from the group's treasury. So they're currently looking to sell the Bible, the the Dune Bible. Uh, I don't see many people willing to spend a million dollars uh, or even anything around that. As we've mentioned on several of our episodes, and Julia, you certainly brought this to our attention as well. Um, most of the content that's in that is now publicly available, it's been collected in several places. Uh, it would be very cool to own that particular piece of history. And I think it still has significant value as just a kind of a collector's piece, but as something that is meant to then create more money for you i don't see it as a major investment any thoughts on that at all julia
2: i, I these guys what the fuck do they know about it i don't know man like it seems like they don't know what they're doing and i i don't know i have no opinion because I, what do i know about cryptocurrency i don't know zero like if you if you if you are crypto people who i, I don't know it's it, it kind of short circuits my brain because i shouldn't be talking about cryptocurrency and jodorowsky in the same sentence it seems wrong <laughs> Like it seems to go against what he stands for a little bit. So,
0: well, I don't know if you heard about that recently launched David Bowie NFTs. So, I mean, no. you know, he's <laughs> the late David Bowie is in the crypto market, uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, sadly ah. enough. I know. I mean, I, I'm in the same boat as you for the most part. I will say that my. My general knowledge of crypto- cryptocurrency is around the idea of it being a risky investment, which seems to have been played out in this particular scenario. Uh, Liam, any thoughts on uh, the, the this crypto group and whether you're looking to make uh, maybe a purchase of this uh, Jodorowsky's Dune Bible?
1: Oh, man. Fuck all of this. Like... <laughs> I, I mean, I. if we go back way, way, way back, way, way, way back to the original sort of germ of an idea that began this question around cryptocurrency, I think... The, the germ of an idea I get I get where it comes from, which is like sure, of course, absolutely. basing all of our currency on the systems that they're based on, which are by the way complicated and difficult to understand in and of themselves, is maybe a bad idea. What if we could develop uh, different ways of, of currency and but A using the blockchain technology for that doesn't actually make as much sense as people pretend it does. Like there's some real problems there and B the whole thing almost immediately was taken over by grifters and con (laughs) men and none of which are good at cybersecurity because there's, you know, regardless of whether this whole thing is a waste of time or not, Many people have lost billions of dollars because all the, I mean, almost immediately people developed banks for these things, which is against yeah. the whole point. Sure, and then those course. banks all got robbed because none of them had good enough cybersecurity. So like all this seems like is a way to launder money that is not secure. You'd be better off just buying actual art and laundering your money that way. To any you know to any of our listeners that are arms dealers or drug or drug dealers out there, just buy real art, and that's a better <laughs> way to launder your money than than this.
0: When I don't understand something, uh, when I, try, I try to follow my nose on it. And if all the worst people I know are really into something, yes. then it's probably not something I'm going to be into <laughs> myself. <laughs> right. Fair, that's just that's my fair. general thoughts on that idea. Hey, if you have um, uh, opposing thoughts, please let us know over at cinemasmokersboard.com. For those who've been waiting for the best possible physical version of Jodorowsky's Incall trilogy of graphic novels, which we've talked about uh, at length on a previous episode, on August 9th of this year, the deluxe hardcover edition of Final Incall was released via the Humanoids uh, publishing company. Um, And that leads into something that I'm a little bit surprised to be saying. I don't know if I even mentioned it out loud on the most recent episode. I might have. Which is that I started to feel a little unsure about the fact that uh the Taika Waititi uh, adaptation of the Inca which we announced several episodes back I hadn't heard any news about it for a while uh, Taika has lots of projects in development many many projects uh his Thor movie it seemed kind of like a stopgap uh, between him you know doing uh, more personal projects. He has so much TV work, including an adaptation of Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits that he's working on at the moment. No
2: fucking way, really?
0: Oh yeah, they just announced a bunch of the casting just this past week. Uh, so he, so there's so much that he's doing right now. I felt like the in call was put on the back burner. Well, I guess I was wrong because on July 26th on Instagram, we were treated to an image. Uh, Liam, describe this image for people who are not looking at it at this moment, which would be probably anyone listening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we've got Taika. We've got uh, Jermaine uh, – what is Jermaine's last name? it's Clements. Clements. On either side of our man Alejandro holding a copy, a French copy it looks like, of the in-call. Uh, and they just look like a cute bunch of guys hanging yeah. out. That would be the best coffee date ever is three, three, <laughs> these three gentle folks talking, talking your ear off. I, I would love that.
0: I, I don't think I've ever seen Jodorowsky look as happy as he does in this particular image, which uh, gives me a lot of hope, actually. I hope maybe that it was starting to fade a little bit. Yeah, so it's Taika, it's Jermaine Clement, who is a usual collaborator on, on uh, Taika's films, and of course uh, was ha- one half of Flight of the Concords, still is, I suppose. Um, and so apparently things are moving along. They have been meeting, uh, having discussions in regards to it. But as I mentioned, yeah, not only is Taika Watiti currently connected to the Time Bandit TV series. He has a Star Wars film that is supposed to be in development. Uh, he's supposed to be involved in the live action version of Akira. The Inca is on the sheet, right? It's one of those projects. But when you're a big director, you usually line up four or five, just because whatever one comes to fruition is the one that you'll do first. But at the very least, it looks like the Inca is still is still in the works. What do you think, Julia? Stoked. I'm stoked as well. You know, Julia. Yeah. I don't know if you notice, over the past few months, it feels like public perception of Taika Waititi has taken a bit of a negative turn. Uh, particularly in the marketing for the Thor film, it just felt like people were feeling very negative. Maybe it was because the reviews for that particular film weren't very strong anyway. What do you think about Taika Waititi?
2: I love Taika Waititi. Uh, I am not a Marvel person, so I have mm-hmm. not seen his Marvel movies, so that does not uh, factor into my opinion of that man. Uh, he's, I like that he's, he, he reminds me a little bit like the, I think the ultimate combination for me is goofy plus sexy. And yeah. I feel like he does that really well. Like he's super fucking hot, but he's also really, really goofy, which I love about him. Also incredibly talented director, writer, etc. Um, and I've actually personally met him in person and I could say that he's very, very lovely and smells nice.
0: <laughs> I also think that he's the kind of person who, because he, he is so invested in comedy in a lot of his work, even though not all of his work is comedic, that he he has kind of a comedic sensibility that comes through in a lot of his interviews, which I think some people interpret as being non-serious, like that he's not serious about his work, when he's made work that I think has is, is been very, very good and very serious at the same time. I'm just, I'm, I did, I'm I-
2: really... Please. I did have an interesting uh, com- brief conversation with his girlfriend when I met him, and uh, it was right after he won his Oscar. And right. she said that the weird thing about it was she's like, everybody, because we were in L.A., she's like, everybody wants something from him. Right. Everybody he talks to, like, it's not just we're being friendly. It's like, what can you do for me? Right. And she said it's so different because they're from New Zealand, right, where there's mm-hmm. not going to be that at all. Um, so I think he's probably been on a very interesting career path, and he continues to be on the upward momentum, right? Right.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting insight actually. I, uh, hmm. th- I that is that is one that I bet a lot of people feel if they come from a bit of a smaller place and is are suddenly exposed on such a wide level in Hollywood. Uh Liam, any thoughts on Taika before we uh, we move on? Yeah, I mean
1: um I understand some of the pushback on the Thor movie only in that like I I think um It was was not a good adaptation choice, I think, for him. I think Gore the God Butcher, as a a series of stories from Thor, is like the rare turn for Thor that it got really dark and really intense. And that was not the movie that we got. The movie we got was mostly funsies. Uh, But there was also complaints about the movie that it did make some pretty intense tonal shifts. But to me... That's Taika Watiti. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. the only time the tonal shifts from him as a director have gone a little too far for me was JoJo Rabbit. Uh I just felt like the the thing we all know, if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I mean. Uh that was a bit much for me. It was a little too much, but it didn't ruin the movie. I just thought I I don't think I needed that the that bit of storytelling. Right. But I didn't think oh, this doesn't make sense. This isn't what he would do. Every single movie, I think, is, a, is, a, is about tonal shifts. It's about him both com- doing funny and doing kind of sad, kind of melancholy, kind of dealing with how life isn't always funny, and that maybe humor comes from how hard life can be. And in the end, all of his movies seem to also relate to this idea of the power of love against a very dark, sad, uh, violent world. And like, awesome. I love that. So some of the people I think who were really bummed on this new Thor movie just don't actually like him as a director as much as they thought they did, right? It's funny hearing you you you
0: describe those, those elements of his career, which you're right, they're very consistent across a lot of his work it makes him seem actually even more perfect for the in call as, as I am
1: more excited for him to do this after seeing Thor, even though I understand why people who saw this newer Thor movie didn't like it. I loved it. And I even loved the parts that were maybe super sac, like there are parts in this movie that are a little more, upbeat then you get like even his funny stuff doesn't tend to be like fully like everything's great now yeah. th- this movie kind of is that and yet i was on board for all of it so yeah i'm stoked on the in call i know he's gonna get dark with it but it's also gonna be funny and i'm really i th- i really excited i think he is the right director for it um at the same time am i ready for him to be done making marvel movies yeah i you know i, I i'm not sick of marvel but i do think like you know, most directors, I think, should do, like, two movies and get out and move on with their lives, honestly.
0: It, it, it is interesting to see him go from an Academy Award-winning film back into the Marvel thing. It did kind of feel, sometimes in interviews, that it was uh, the... Um that it was a commitment that he had to make and had to complete and maybe 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 it was maybe it wasn't but uh anyway this is not a taiko TV focused podcast that we'll be talking about him a lot in the future as well i've joked a little bit on recent episodes about how strange it is to talk about alejandro Jodorowski in the context of social media but the fact is he has embraced it massively he tweets he posts on facebook every single day for the most part we even talked about before when he announced that you know he had to take a break from it for a little while uh, and his Instagram and his wife's Instagram are very interesting as a way to kind of keep up on where he is in his life. And one of the things that his wife often posts is, are like these little comedic films that they make together. Well, they're, they're not even really films, they're like sketches of him being a little bit silly, doing a little bit of mime in public. I really can't recommend them enough. I'm gonna actually link them in the show notes today so you can check them out themselves. Even with the recent tragedies uh, that, that he has encountered, there's a lot of joy in just seeing him, you know, be a little silly, be a little light, and also just realizing, you know, he's 93 years old. The rather volatile version of Jodorowsky is probably still in there. In fact, we I, think we, I suspect it still is, but uh, he, he's just, he softened in my own image a lot in recent years. And I wanna end off our announcements at the beginning of this episode with an image that was recently posted to his Instagram. Uh, it's a picture of uh, Jarowski resting with his cat, his beloved cat, Dolce. This is from September 25th, just 10 days after the death of Cristobal. This is a translated caption, so it may not be um, exact. Today, Sunday, a day of rest. My cat, Dolce, and I, plus Pascalita, taking the photo. We are very sad. Tomorrow, Monday, I will try to find a smile to write for you. Um... I'm a. I really love his social media. I I find it actually very enlightening and very interesting. I'm a skeptic and a cynic at heart, so uh, seeing a lot of these like one line, two line, uh, inspiring messages, sometimes I take them. I scoff a little at them, but I have to say I found them very enriching lately. I uh, just want to get both of your thoughts on this image before we move on to the Rainbow Thief. Starting with you, Julia.
2: Who doesn't like a cute Jodorowsky? You don't get yeah. that very often. I always uh, when he's silly it makes me happy because a lot of like when I think of him in his work he seems really intense but he he does bring both he does bring both the intensity and the silliness to his work which I appreciate
0: he posted a a video a short video recently where he was going through a revolving door where he's going into it and he's he's being like mock angry he's like ah and then coming around when he comes out he's like expressive and cartoonishly happy at the same time just a very bizarre but also very cute and kind of adorable at the same time i don't ever want to infantilize him as an artist because his work does struggle with so many kind of darker things but it is something that i really think there's value in keeping up on liam any thoughts on this image
1: i mean come on it's it's him and his kitty i don't i you know i mean i think the 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 caption makes me think this is also a representation of of his you know, sadness. And, yeah, so and grief. Yeah, that, absolutely. that that's hard. That part's hard. But the fact that he chose to represent it this way, I think is a very compassionate thing, actually, because, you know, we as the people who are his audience, not just of his movies, but through his social media of his life, we are his audience. And he often performs for us. What a compassionate way to say not today. You know, yeah. like, I'm just, you know, I, I, I'll be back to be a positive part of your lives later, and that's how I feel about his social media. That like, it's not positive in some sort of fake Instagram influencer way. It's just really who he is, sharing uh, things that y- you might find inspirational or you might not. And I also think that's the other beauty about a lot of his work, which is like, in the end, it doesn't matter if it doesn't affect you. If 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 it if it if it isn't getting to the core of whatever it is you care about it's what he put out there and it's okay and the next thing will get you you know like if this quote he put out doug is like a little too not hitting for you chances are tomorrow he's going to say something where you go oh that's interesting you know what i mean so uh, i don't know i i kind of like his uh he's not afraid to just put it out there and see if it works for people you know
0: he's also for a good reason been writing a lot about death recently Uh, and it's those uh those speak to me as someone who finds themselves semi-obsessed with death all the time. They speak to me a little bit more uh, closely than some of his work uh, elsewhere. Julia, Liam, we are here to talk about 1990s The Rainbow Thief, a very unique movie, a uh, one that is probably even compared to, to Tusk, one of the more underwritten about, under spoken about Films in the entire filmography <clears throat> entire filmography of Alejandro Jodorowsky, it is one of two of his films that he is entirely disowned. He does not speak about it for the most part. When he's asked about it in interviews, he is not at all positive. Even compared to Tusk, where in interviews he's mentioned that, you know, there is a good movie there, according to him. That if he had all the footage, that he could re-edit that into something that would be worthwhile. He does not feel that about The Rainbow Thief. It's the only film of his which he was not involved in the writing of. It is the largest budgeted film uh, that he has ever made, even up to this point, I believe. And so I want to talk a little bit about how this movie came to be before we take a little break and we start talking about it proper i think the big key to this is alexander salkine the producer the mega producer who i know best as the producer of the superman films the original superman films with christopher reeve he uh, approached the uh, jodorowsky after the the kind of international success of santa sangre about helming a wife uh, sorry helping a wife <laughs> sorry about uh, directing a film that his wife, Berta Dominguez-D, wrote about an eccentric heir to a massive fortune who befriends a thief as they live underground in the sewers and await word for the heir to receive his fortune. The story itself didn't appeal to Jodorowsky, but as we saw in uh, in the little bits from that Jonathan Ross uh, documentary, uh, or in some of his interviews, he just really wanted, and this, I wanna hear your interpretation of this when we talk about the film proper, he really wanted to have a big budget. He wanted to see what it was like to make a movie with real stars. And these are massive stars. Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif getting together for the first time since Lawrence of Arabia, Christopher Lee, you know, big stars with a large budget, with, you know, with a story that maybe is meant to appeal a little bit more widely than the work that he would made previously, certainly compared to Santa Sangre. And then he started making it. <laughs> and uh, what he found was that he was getting calls Every day making sure that he did not deviate from the script making sure that he did not add violence to it This was not meant to be a violent movie He had handcuffs on him for the entire time Uh, despite having a nice time working with Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif as well as getting Christopher Lee in the film He was unhappy with making it because he had no input on what to do or say Visually and any attempt to create any humor or anything whimsical would feel forced and uninspired and he would be uh, squabbling with the producer all the time, um, and and it just it was not a positive experience. And not only was it not a positive experience, even though it did have a premiere in 1990 in London, it uh, had a very short theatrical window and ended up going straight to video in the United States. And I just want to talk just quickly about the video cover of the Rainbow <laughs> Thief, which I have a picture of at the beginning of our outline here. Uh, Julia, could you describe this cover for me?
2: Uh, it's very saccharine looking. Uh, mm-hmm. It looks almost like a Hallmark kind of movie. Very much so. With, uh, uh, we got Peter O'Toole and Sher- Omar Sharif grinning, those those grins right at us looking, it looks, like, showing that to someone and saying this is a Jodorowsky movie, like, that does not compute. Those things do not come together. That cover, whoever designed that cover, no, you did a terrible job. A terrible it- job.
0: It is unbelievable. And it also has the tagline for the film is, you can just live or you can live it up. So, uh. I know. It is, uh, <laughs> it, even Frank Frank Povich pa- uh, tweeted me about it. It's like, I cannot believe that tagline. Uh, it certainly isn't reflective of the movie, but uh, it would be hard to make an image maybe totally reflective of the movie that it's about. But boy, it just looks like something. I think it's meant really, just to show, hey, we have Omar Sharif, we have Peter O'Toole, you like Lawrence of Arabia, you remember those people? They're together in this, and that's it. No mention of Jodorowsky, no mention of the the kind of wild visual style, which really is on display here. No mention of what the movie is actually about, though the title doesn't give much of a key to that either. Liam, what did you think of this cover?
1: It feels like I made it in Photoshop to fuck with people. <laughs> like It doesn't feel like, you know what I mean? Like It feels like a joke. It doesn't you know what? Actually, that's – you know, it
0: kind of reminds me. Remember people who re-edit The, the Shining yes. so it looks like a family yes. movie or yes. something like that? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think you made a
1: actually a more salient point than, than maybe we gave credit to, which is that there probably is not a great way to market this movie. If you market it too hard as, you know, Jodorowsky's back and he's doing this – thing. like, no one who got on board with El Topo or, for that matter, Santa Sangre – is going to come into this Rainbow Thief thing and be totally satisfied if you pretend like the Rainbow Thief represents those other uh, a continuation of the work of those other movies. On the other hand, anyone who saw this just bore it's you could look at this image to go to sleep at night, right? Like it's it's yeah. such a like a <laughs> like a like a sleep-inducing tranquilizer of an image. Anyone who saw that and went, oh, that looks pleasant. They're not going to like this either, though. Like, I don't know. There's no direction you could go with this where it's like, we're really going to get people in who are ready for this experience. But, you know, I get the feeling that I don't know that anyone was super happy with how this thing ended up. Right. We focus on, um, you know, Jodorowski disowning it. But. Were the producers like, no, he got it right. This is what we wanted. Or were they also bummed on it? I, I don't know. It feels like the whole thing is something that that the only person who you know we have evidence seemed pretty stoked was Omar Sharif, who was very happy <laughs> to be working with Rowski and thought of him as a poet more than a filmmaker. I thought, man, he must be bummed that nobody cares about this movie. Or he's nothing now. But you know what I mean? At the time, it must have been a bummer if he had such a good time making it for, to come out and not get the attention that maybe he thought... Thought it might, you know. Well, I, re- I
2: have I have written across my notes really big on the top. Mm-hmm. Who is this made for?
0: Yes, right. Yes,
2: exactly.
0: An excellent question, and one that we're going to explore in some detail when we talk about the movie proper. I, I do want to mention, by the way, I read a, a segment from Peter O'Toole's biography, which suggests that Omar Sharif almost died and drowned making the film, which you could totally understand could have happened with the amount of water in it. So the fact that he was still so positive, maybe afterwards or maybe in the midst of making the movie, uh, says a lot about how uh, Alejandro and him got along during the making of it. do uh, have a couple of, of uh, interview cl- uh, snippets uh, with Alejandro Jodorowsky speaking specifically about this film. From a 2012 interview from Film Comment, he was asked, do you have any interest in reviving Tusk and The Rainbow Thief? They never made it to VHS or DVD, which, of course, that has changed since then, at least when it comes to The Rainbow Thief. Uh, Jodorowski says, The Rainbow Thief was a fight with the person who wrote the script that inspired my picture and her husband, Alex Salkind. He produced Superman, something like that. She wanted an action picture and she wanted an intellectual picture. And then I made the picture. She took it and cut every action scene and every intellectual scene. And now I'm waiting for somebody to show my version. Maybe one day they will find my version and they will say it's a good picture. This suggests that maybe there is a, a more footage out there That, uh, but it also very much echoes his, his thoughts on Tusk. Maybe it's just a way to protect himself from it, especially because he was told that he wasn't able to change the script at all. And uh, they followed up, the interviewer says, but currently there are no plans to reissue them. He says, I don't know, maybe, because now my pictures are selling and I became some kind of business. I hope they will do it. But when I was shooting, I wanted to know how a big picture was made. The photographer with a big staff. I wanted to learn about the industry, you know, and it was terrible for me. And the interviewer says, and now you know. And he says, and now I know, never more. But I was fighting, fighting in order to do whatever I want. Every day was a real fight, and then I signed a contract that said no violence. No violence, what a crazy thing. How can you make something with no violence? Life, there, you look through the window and you see violence, and then it wasn't 100% my picture. I was tired, but there are some things that I like in the film. You need to see it, it's not so bad. I wonder if we're gonna echo those same thoughts. Uh, From an IndieWire interview from 2014, uh talking specifically about the dance of reality it says this is your first movie since rainbow thief why this movie and why now he says that he was making pictures el topo holy mountain where he was free he was doing whatever he wanted but always with very little money in movies, images cost. If you want a big image, it takes more money. I have no opportunity. Then I wanted to know about the experience of making the industrial picture, which is something we've heard him talk about before, industrial pictures. Then Alexander kind, a person who produced the first Superman, a very good industrial producer, wanted to be an artist. So he had a script and I said, okay, I will do it. It was $50 million and it had stars, Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif, Christopher Lee, then I started to shoot and it was the worst experience of my life because I was not free. If we wanted to change the script, we had to call the producer. The rushes I did, the producers see first. I had to deal with Peter O'Toole who was terrible. It was terrible for me. For me. <laughs> if I have to make another picture like that, I won't do it. The industrial picture is an illness. For an artist, it's not possible. I am a poet, I am not a worker. I need to be free and then I wait 23 years. A lot of people offer me serial killer movies all the time or sexual pictures, all the stupidity, I say no. No, I will wait until the moment I can be free to do whatever I want, then I did it. Yeah. I did leave in this little extra bit from this interview where the interviewer asks him what the craziest things people have offered him is. He says, well, all the time it's about serial killers or degenerates who kill women. All the time it's that. I say, why can't I kill hippopotamus, a hippopotamus serial killer? He goes into all the zoos in the world killing the hippopotamus. Why not? Liam, would you watch a hippopotamus serial killer movie directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky? You know, my first response
1: to that is like, I get the joke, but no, that sounds like a bummer. But then I thought about it, and hippos are pretty scary. I feel like it it, it would it, it might turn into more of like a uh, like a guy fighting for his life against hippos because they're pretty <laughs> yeah, dangerous.
0: Absolutely, they're dangerous, and they kill many people every single year. Hey, yeah. maybe he's got an idea there, uh, Julia. Any thoughts on these quotes in general? It seems like he had a miserable idea. Uh, uh, sorry, a miserable experience making this movie, but he did also end that little uh, little quote there. You need to see it. It's not so bad. Without giving away your thoughts on it, uh, what do you think about uh, Jodorowski's feelings on this movie?
2: Uh, I mean, this is i mean, this is what this will be get me getting into what I'm thinking, really. Sure, which is right. Which just of course. like uh, how I understand Jodorowski's curiosity about making an industrial picture, but it's not who he is at all. So yeah. the, the fact that he had a terrible time, is that really a surprise to him? <laughs> of course he's going to have a terrible time. He's not, you know, his whole, all of his movies are him. And if you make a movie where like, oh, you don't get to be you at all. Take you out of that. And then you go, but then what's the point? But that's what an industrial director does, right? It's not really about them. They're just making this thing. So I don't know why he was surprised. <laughs> it seems so. Um, I I, like, I go, yeah, yes, yes, of course you had a terrible time. Of course you did.
0: I can see somebody like him who had been working in comic books at that point for a number of years that he wanted to bring these big images that he had in his mind to life. And the only way that he would be able to do that is to work with a producer that would have put more of a handle on him. But I don't think he thought it was going to be quite as repressive as it ended up being. And it makes me wonder, by the way, is uh, if he was able to get that money together, even though it was independent money for Dune, if he also would have ended up experiencing a lot of that and would have been hindered to such a great extent. Uh, at least that one was all storyboarded out, so maybe he could keep that vision together. For this, it just felt like, and I wonder if this is what we're all going to say about it, it feels like someone doing a Jodorowsky impression as opposed to Jodorowsky himself's sensibility coming through in the film. I, I mean, it's not unusual for an artist to make you know, a, a, a great low-budget film that is very full of their sensibilities, and then they go on to make a Hollywood movie. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it really does and their sensibility manages to come through. I'm thinking like a Tim Burton or a Terry Gilliam have been able to be successful in those fields. But Jodorowsky, he's just kind of a different animal. And that is what I really want us to leave with as we head into our first break. (laughs) Jodorowsky is just a different kind of artist. That's something that we've kind of gone back to again and again. Let us take a break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about a film that no one talks about. 1990s, The Rainbow Thief. Little more, my beauties. It's your favorite pinch. Drink up, my darlings. Drink up.
2: Read all about it. A centric millionaire leaves huge fortune. Read all about it. Read.
0: I'm going to lose my From the director of the Magic Mountain comes an extraordinary motion picture.
1: To see Uncle Rudolph in the smoke. Silence. Is he a dwarf with a big stick in his hand?
0: Ah! Ah! You're the most disgusting type of survivor I've ever seen.
1: Peter O'Toole is Prince Meliagra. It seems that Mr. Fontana's nephew is a rather odd case. No bank account, no driver's license, no medical insurance card, nothing. Miss Fennig. Miss Fennig? Very kindly bring a psychiatric. Christopher <sighs> Lee is Uncle Rudolph.
2: I hope you all like bones. The carrier, of course, goes to the dogs. <laughs> Spoiled, aren't they? You lied! Making the sucker out of me when you knew all the time your uncle
0: wouldn't leave you a cent. <laughs> My God, what I want is some real-life
1: flesh. Raw. Bring up Madame
0: Rainbow and it to send over some of her The Rainbow Thief, a film by Alejandro A petty crook in search of the cliched pot of gold at the end of the rainbow hopes to cash in by befriending the heir to a huge fortune. That's sort of the plot of 1990's The Rainbow Thief, <laughs> also sometimes uh, credited as 1994's The Rainbow Thief because it didn't get a release, um, a kind of a wide release until 1994. Directed, of course by the great Alejandro Jodorowsky. Written, as we've already mentioned, by Berta dominguez D, the partner of Alexander Salkind uh, from his from 1946 until his death in 1997. I don't mean to suggest that she wasn't a qualified actress and writer in her own right. Uh, she contributed to a number of films. She actually plays Tiger Lily in the film as well. She uh, uh, helped write Where is Parcival from 1984 and 1981's Maya, which she also acted in. Produced by Alexander Salkind. Again, I know him best for his kind of very big-budgeted movies from the late 70s early 80s including superman which we brought up several times he also uh did the three musketeers and four musketeers as well as santa claus the movie in the mid 80s which was a huge movie for me <laughs> and it was also a massive bomb um also um helped produce the trial directed by uh, orson welles
2: that's wait, i want we, wait 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 can we just please. take a second there <laughs> the trial but or- kafka's the trial but orson welles and santa claus the movie And Santa Claus the
0: movie. Hey, you know what? He contained multitudes. And one of those multitudes was wanting his wife's uh, script to be turned into a movie directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky. He snapped his fingers, and if by magic, it occurred. And the result was 1990's The Rainbow Thief. Now, I'm going to get both of your general thoughts on this movie. But before we get into what did you think, I want to ask you the question that seems to be the only question people ask about this movie, which is, what went wrong? And this time I'm going to start with you, Liam. What went wrong? Why did this turn into a disaster?
1: That's a good question, Doug. And I I, I knew you were going to ask it. And I've been focusing on this idea that he's put out many times is that he didn't have the control to do what he wanted, right? But I also wonder if, because when we see the footage, we're going to talk about this later, but we see the yes. footage of him on set from that John Ross piece that we're going to talk about later on. He seems pretty stoked to be there, and he complains a little bit. But for the most part, he's just excited to be doing this thing. I wonder if he thought that despite the limitations placed on him, he could still make something that was as meaningful as his prior work. And that in the end, he couldn't get there with the material. Because not just the lack of violence, which he brings up a few times. I don't know that he has to rely on violence per se. I'm not really
0: sure where violence would necessarily fit into this there, picture. And there, there,
2: right. there is violence in this movie, right?
1: Yes, yes, there is, there is some. But it, th- this idea that he couldn't do the the gore or whatever, I don't think that's, I don't think that's real. I do think what's real is, to me, uh, when when we earlier on, not the one you just read, but earlier on, you read a kind of a description of what the movie was about, and I think abstracted far enough, there are. Things here that have connected to other things that Jodorowsky sort of cares about to me—that there's like aspects of class and meaning and what it means to be human and and those sorts of things—and I just don't think the film has any of those moments really, despite being tied into questions around what it matters to to be a human, you know, and and this cast of weird characters. Um, it doesn't feel like there's that Jodorowsky infusion of, whether it's tarot or mythology or whatever it is, it it, it kind of lacks, while the visual language I think is there where uh, clips of this really do feel like, like him, um, the material never quite gets to that thoughtful place. It also... For me, at least, it never gets to the grotesquerie either that 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 a lot of the other films, there's both this like meditation on all kinds of sources of meaning and also utter uh, 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 fascination with these like over the top. Uh, grotesque things and, and I don't think that's in this movie at all honestly
0: mm-hmm. interesting yeah well let's we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more I want to get your thoughts as well Julia maybe the question it can go both ways is what went wrong and or did anything go wrong what did you think it did, why did this movie turn out to be a disaster Julia
2: because the script's terrible
0: there you go yeah, I think yeah, I think you probably. hit the nail on the head I that's think that's really it. the
2: problem why he would read that script and be like this is the one I don't know. I, I got nothing. I don't know what it's trying to say. I don't know. It, it seems in some ways to be kind of this thing for children, but then it's obviously not for children at all. Right. Cause you've got top right. ladies in lingerie. So like, I don't know who, cause it's, I mean, I like that man and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to try to like this movie as much as I will because I love Jodorowsky, but I got, I don't, who is, why, <laughs> why this? I don't understand. And I, I, you know, the, the, I understand wanting to try a big, you know, a big budget and trying this big movie, but why this one? I don't, I don't get it.
0: It, it is kind of a question that even in those interview segments doesn't really get answered. He, he says, I wanted to make an industrial film, uh, industrial picture, like a large budgeted movie, but he didn't say really why this one. He must have figured that the wife of the producer making it was going to mean that he would be a little more restricted, even than if it was just some other script taken off a shelf. I'd love to learn more about how that process happened. Maybe it was just because it would have been the easiest path for him having a larger budget. He knew Alexander Salkind really wanted to make it, and so this was the, the script that was, and the script does have a lot of unusual elements that seem, at least on the surface, to be rather Jodorowskian, and I mean, we know how movies come together. Maybe Peter O'Toole got attached and Omar Sharif got attached, and suddenly, hey, it was just a clear path for him to make this movie. I want to say up front, before we get into our general thoughts, that I like the Rainbow Thief as a movie. Outside of of this podcast, just watching it, there's a lot that I liked specifically in the first 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes. Everything in between feels like a mess, but sometimes a visually, a visually interesting mess. But I don't think it's a terrible movie, and I don't even think it's a bad movie. In the way that some people might think, Tusk was a bad movie. It doesn't seem as confused. That said, and this is pointing to what you were saying, Liam, the script is really, really bad. Actually, it's what both of you were saying. The script is really bad, but also there's a hint in that in that interview with Jodorowski that that maybe this isn't the script. This isn't everything that was filmed. Maybe it was all taken apart. Because doesn't it kind of feel like that first 20 minutes is very disconnected from the rest of the movie? Don't you expect the family and all that having to do with the will, that's all going to come up again? But then it doesn't really come up at all until the final 20 minutes. This movie just feels very disconnected. And because of that disconnect, I had trouble trying to figure out what it was trying to say. And that is always a dangerous thing to, to do when it comes to the films of Alejandro Jodorowsky. What is it trying to say? Except this movie is a little bit, actually a lot more straightforward than those other movies. So let, let us try to keep in the back of our minds what do we think the overall message of this movie is? Because at the, those last few moments where Omar Sharif is taking that dog out of the water, it's telling us something. Let's go back to that in just a little bit. But before we do any of that, let's talk about our general thoughts, starting with you, Julia. What did you think of the Rainbow Thief? Uh,
2: I'm okay. So uh, I'm going to jump ahead just slightly, just because this will this will go to my point. Please, there there is one scene in this movie that I will describe to you that you will make, make you want to watch this movie. Right. We got Christopher Lee as an eccentric millionaire who is in this giant room with like six giant Great Danes, and he's riding this turtle shaped cow hide covered robot with a saddle yep. that's making these robot noises and there's jukebox planes and he's playing crashing cymbals and he looks really happy and that scene i was like this this is what i paid for this is what i want that one scene alone i'm like sold worth it for the for that the rest of the movie downhill <laughs> that's i mean well we, we i mean we got some ladies we got some topless ladies in lingerie after that downhill that's all. That was the best part of the movie, 100%. And that was the most Jodorowsky part of that movie. I was like, I watched that scene. I was like, yep. And I'm sure Jodorowsky explained it to Christopher Lee. This is what you'll be doing. Christopher Lee was like, okay, sounds great. So, I mean, beyond that, I'm like, Ugh. I don't care about any of the characters very much. Everyone seems like an asshole. Yes. I don't know if I'm supposed to like people because I sure don't. Like, you open with Omar Sharif sharing eating a dead raw fish out of the water, sharing it with a rat. Yeah. I'm like, is that supposed to make me like this character? Because <laughs> I just think you're disgusting. I don't understand. Was he ever have any sort of redeeming qualities? I don't know. We'll get there.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe it's in his relation to uh, creatures as opposed to people, but that's something, yeah, maybe we'll get there. I do want to say that segment that you were mentioning with Christopher Lee, that happens in the first 20 minutes of the film. If what you want out of this movie is... Boy, I wonder what it would be like if Jodorowsky filmed Christopher Lee doing all sorts of weird stuff. Well, you get that. You are absolutely rewarded. Christopher Lee seems like he's having a ball. Uh, you only get him again for that first 20 minutes for the most part, but it is prime Christopher Lee slash Jodorowski content in this and it, uh, it it fulfills that. And I think you're, you're exactly right with that, Julia. It then makes everything that comes after for the next like 45 minutes to an hour really seems like I wish we could go back to the visual style of that where Mm -hmm. it does have something strange. Though I will also say the fact that he then has all these rainbow women, these topless women in lingerie come in, it is, you know, it's great for me. It's fine. I like watching it and it's all interesting. But it's just like, that is literally the, the... it's almost like this movie was designed to be a children's movie, or at least maybe a slightly darker spin on it. But every once in a while, something will happen, and, and like someone there's like an attempted uh, sexual assault later in it that t- turns out kind of strangely. And it's just like, wh- who is this for? We just asked it already. Who is supposed to be watching this and enjoying it? It's so strange. It 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 really does feel disjointed. Uh, and Liam, now I want to get your general thoughts on it and whether you agree with what we've been saying so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, if if that Christopher Lee stuff was what the movie felt like after that, then we'd be talking about a different you know, that all that stuff was crazy. I mean, even the whole thing where he brings over the sycophants. I mean, yeah. some of them are his family, obviously. Yeah, if, like, yeah, yeah. He thinks of them as sycophants, and he's feeding them dog bones while the dogs yeah. eat caviar. I love it. Awesome. It's great. I love it. When that started, I thought, so I read a review on Letterboxd that was actually pretty positive, and this person had a lot of cajoling for the negative reviews, saying, just because Jodorowsky disowned this movie doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It just means it's not the movie he wanted to make. This is still a really good movie. And I thought, okay, well, somebody seems stoked on it. Sure. Uh I don't agree with this person. I think it still doesn't really work as a movie for me. Um but I I also I guess I also expected it to after the first 20 minutes and we get that stuff with the with what I guess is the the person who's going to leave this money, right? It's not that it suddenly becomes a totally different kind of movie. There is some strange things that happen. And there are aspects of it that do feel like him. But again, I just feel like it lacks a lot in meaning. You know, even some of the most ridiculous, off-the-wall aspects of his other movies, there's still a part of me that feels like the general vibe is being animated by some idea, some something that's being communicated. And I didn't feel like that this whole movie that there was anything under the surface going on. And I found myself thinking a lot about how I really, really like uh, the Omar Sharif po- performance in this film, right. And right, right. I keep thinking, why is he doing this? Like what is like he's out there, he's doing his thing. I like what he's doing. But I don't know what it matters because it's like there, nothing is happening that I care about. There's nothing like moving me forward in this thing. Uh, I, you know, I don't really like the Peter O'Toole stuff. It's just sort of like weird. I mean, I, I kind of enjoy the the dog is real outside of the sewer and he's not real in the sewer. That's kind of funny.
0: I Don't know if that's necessarily my interpretation of it. But please, what please is that?
1: okay? Well, what's going on with the dog then? I don't well, understand. It, it, it's,
0: the difficulty is that. When they were going into the sewer initially, the dog ended up getting lost, and Peter O'Toole, being an eccentric, basically turned a puppet, into like he created a dog oh. puppet as a replacement. They mentioned it a few times, and then the dog at the end isn't supposed to be the same puppet. It's supposed to be that, oh, he had been wandering around the sewers for years, and then just happened to come out, out at the end.
2: Oh, I honestly thought that it was like the taxidermied actual dog. That he okay, had well, like scooped out the insides of that dog and made. Yeah, him I
1: kind of thought something like that was going on. That it was like dead, but then came alive.
0: It would have made a lot more sense if there was a scene where we saw the dog get lost initially. We see them trying to force the dog into a um, uh, manhole. And but we never see them and like get into it. So then they just tell us about it afterwards. Yeah. So it's a little bit.
1: If I'm being my least generous, what I want to say is I find the Holy Mountain more narratively interesting than this movie. Which (laughs) is which is a bummer. (laughs) You don't say (laughs) because there's almost no narrative in the Holy Mountain. And this is a film that is almost entirely narrative with just some weird bits, but I just don't care about it. And then, you know, even if the narrative isn't that gripping, well, maybe there's like really off the wall imagery or there's, like, a philosophical uh, issue at stake that we're exploring. And I didn't feel any of that, man. It just felt like kind of a waste of time. But do I think it's, like, uh, the worst thing ever? No, it's not It's not terrible. I just don't know who watching this movie would would be like, oh, that was really great. I really enjoyed my experience. I don't know. I don't know who, what audience is going to be pleased with this experience. You know,
2: I want the movie I wanted because I mean I think Christopher Lee's character is living. If you have that much money, that's the ideal life you're living. Like he's really, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't get better than it does that, anything. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 for me, you have this incredible van that pulls up full of women in Roy G. Biv colored lingerie that was i was like that's a fucking premise what about these ladies i want to i want to like pivot this storyline let's just talk about them what is their life like that seems way more interesting than anything happening in this movie because the rainbow girls holy fuck what's going on with that i think the setup makes so
0: much sense right where you have this extremely eccentric old man who's a rich you know uh you know wealthy person has these terrible Uh, potential heirs family members who hate him and despise him and then he has one like nephew who is also equally eccentric in his life and the idea is that they're going to scheme and try to keep this nephew from getting the money we've seen variations on this in many movies previously and that's what it seems like it's setting up and then it's 45 minutes in the sewers (laughs) that it's just you know and, and mostly with omar sharif peter o'toole really doesn't have a lot to do in this movie and i guess maybe that is Partially because of his difficulty working with Jodorowsky, and I'd love to hear more about that. There's not much detail. Oh my god! If I could watch a fight
2: between Peter O'Toole and Jodorowsky, Mm.
0: (laughs) luscious. I mean, Peter O'Toole, of course, is is notorious. One of the you know a a a drinker and a rogue, and particularly in the 1970s, he got into a lot of trouble. Um, so it would have been interesting to see. But this is the Omar Sharif show for the most part, and I'm I find myself between both of you in regards to my thoughts on this performance. On one side you're right, the character is not very likable, Julia. And it makes it difficult to have him as the protagonist, as someone that we're supposed to care about. On the other side, I love the the, the sequences of him like, going out and stealing and running away and stealing more and just like living in this this way like some of those if you were to edit the highlights of this movie together into like a 20 minute package it would look like a Jodorowsky movie and it would look more expensive and visually fascinating than almost any of his other movies or at least as much so like there's a part where he's they have these huge crowd scenes where where Omar Sharif is running around and stealing as he's going and stealing food and I think those sequences are absolutely magnificent this movie, by the way, was shot in Poland, uh, and it has this kind of otherworldly, out of time look to it. It's hard to tell when it's supposed to necessarily take place. Uh, you would think that with with what you're seeing, that it would be like, you know, early 1900s. But then at the end of the movie, there's some elements that make it look a little bit more modern, and so you know, it kind of has that fairy tale feel to it. So the idea of then putting like very adult elements into it, it just makes it very confusing. Outside of the character. Uh, of Omar Sharif, uh, and maybe even the the knowledge that Peter O'Toole was difficult in this, uh, were any of the performances, and again, when I talk about the performances, there aren't a lot that really stick out, because there aren't a lot of characters that have much depth, but going to you, Julia, what are the performances that you most enjoyed or disliked in this film?
2: I really can't, <laughs> Besides Christopher, <laughs> besides Christopher Lee, I can't, I don't really, there's no one really, yeah. like, the bartender was kind of cool. But other than that, because like I don't, you say you like Omar Sharia's performance. I find it kind of obnoxious. I can honestly. see that. Like it's it, like he's you know his face is all kind of twisted around and he's got this kind of weird run and I you know I, I think he's trying to be cartoonish, but I don't, that. don't like I don't like it.
0: I like the physical performance. I think more than anything else. I just just it is considering that he was getting up there. He really kind of throws himself into the role and maybe it's one that i respect more than like uh you did. bring up ian Dury as the uh as the bartender the lady Ian duri from ian Dury in the blockheads he shows up he's fun right you know he, yeah. he, he has a fun relationship with omar sharif i do suspect and i'd like to get your thoughts on this as well that uh the dima character played by omar sharif this this uh thief guy he is supposed to be if there is one in this film a jodorowskian insert um, I mean, he's as close as we might have in this. <laughs> I do think Jodorowski thinks that he's lovable, even if it doesn't really come through. Maybe it's because he's supposed to make an evolution throughout the movie. We make a, we see him make a somewhat selfless decision near the very end. But we also know that his motivation for much of it is the idea that he is basically working away for this eccentric uh, heir to a millionaire. With the idea that he's going to get a portion of this money when the when the millionaire actually dies because he's currently in a coma. Do
2: you know what it reminds me of? Um, I'm always obsessed with. I think the best uh, the best part of any Dracula story is Renfield, right? Yeah, you yeah, have yeah. Renfield, who is this guy who thinks he's going to be wonderfully rewarded by the master, right? It's so loyal and these big hearts in his eyes for the master, and never gets wonderfully rewarded. It reminded me a little bit of that.
0: Yeah, I, I could I could absolutely see that. Except in th- this particular case, because he doesn't have any kind of supernatural connection, when he realizes the money is not coming, his reaction, I think, is a pretty natural reaction, which is, "The hell with this guy. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm heading off into the sewers. By the way, Liam, that part where he is hiding from uh, some people who are like repairing the sewers and a bunch of brown stuff falls on him, that's shit, right? There's shit falling on Omar Sharif's face.
1: Yeah, apparently.
0: <laughs> Liam, I mean- what did you think? Other performances in this movie.
1: Um, I here's the thing. I, I actually see Julia's point a little bit. I agree with you, Doug, that it's a little more physical. I gotta say, on the scale of annoyance, though, I'll take Omar Sharif over the uh, Victrola guy. Oh, the constant. I would, like,
2: I would no. like him if he wasn't just harping about the Victrola the entire movie. <laughs> It's He's constant. Kind of I,
1: what are, I mean, I get a running gag, but that's a running annoyance. It's like a constant test of, are you going to finish this movie? Every time he shows up, I think, yeah, this podcast was a bad idea. I should turn this movie off. <laughs> I just can't with this motherfucker. He just looks like the fuck.
0: <laughs> Liam, just sticking with that for a moment. So, that character, uh, there's a little person in the film, as there are in a lot of uh, Dodorowski's films. Um, and he's first introduced in a segment that I actually think is really fun, where there, the, we have the Dima character played by Omar Sharif. He's going through this marketplace basically, and there's there's all these kind of uh, performers. It's very almost very Santa Sangre-ish to a certain extent. And then he he becomes obsessed with this this Victrola Victrola this this record player, which is part of a performance where someone is trying to sell some powder to get rid of bugs, and it's all about a potato bug. And uh, we see this little person who is involved with this. And uh, in the guise of trying to help this person after the end of the performance, Dima steals the vitrola, And this guy shows up for the rest of the movie yelling and trying to beat up Dima, the character played by Omar Sharif, to get his vitrola back. Now, there's also a relationship between this little person and a giant who is seems to be obsessed with rocks, like he keeps picking up rocks throughout the movie. Liam, what is your interpretation of that relationship? I didn't understand it.
1: <laughs> I mean there's a lot of like um recurring moments and characters in this movie that I don't understand what's supposed to be going on. Like I just was like what is this about? I don't know. And so, you know, I I mean I guess it's funny that he's got a giant friend who can beat people up, but I don't know why it's in the movie, honestly. It's not
0: as helpful as it as you would have thought it would be. You know how sometimes when people are mocking uh, Ingmar Bergman's films and they'll just they'll do like a parody of it and it'll just be people like staring into the camera and and just black and white images sometimes this movie feels like what if someone was trying to make a parody of Jodorowsky there's a part mm-hmm. where they encounter uh, this kind of older prostitute type woman I guess and she is beaten to death and she dies she's like I could never do death scenes she was a performer in the past and she dies and I, I was left wondering it's like what was that supposed to mean what is that supposed to represent it doesn't seem to have any meaning in the context of the film he as just a whole? needed
2: it he needed his violence he got his violence yeah it's there it very... is i mean for them to say there's no violence in it there totally is so i don't yeah. know what, what he's going on about
1: i mean I think, it's I th- blood i think I this the...
2: the... one what... yeah, sure please. but i think the problem that i have with Dima, like for me if you're a thief like if you steal from the fat cats i don't mind right like, steal from them right but like to steal the record player for like that guy need that man that's his job like you're just fucking people over now at this level of or like, stealing a, a know,
0: chicken from a woman who could barely like walk down a flight of stairs
2: yeah like you're just being a there's a you know an honor among thieves kind of thing where like he's just doesn't seem to have any scruples at all like just stealing from old women and people who need that money it seems really cruel
0: get away from the performances for a second one of the reasons that Jodorowsky wanted to make this film was because he would have a larger budget to work with. And that budget, I think, is visible. This is definitely a more polished film than Santa Sangre. Uh, it seems to have, have uh, sound, for one thing. It seems like the performances are filmed. It's not post-dubbed or anything like that. Um, what Was there any visual style that particularly stuck out to you, Liam? I'm going to start with you. One of the things as I mentioned in the in the notes that we're looking at here is that there are times in this movie that felt like You know, I already mentioned like a Tim Burton transferring from making lower budgeted movies to higher budgeted ones and being able to keep his style somewhat intact. Uh, I was, I thought, oftentimes of Jean-Pierre Jeunet, uh, the director of films like *Delicatessen* and *Amélie*, while watching this. I certainly thought of Terry Gilliam, particularly *Fisher King* era, which this would have been near that era in terms of kind of transitioning that style into something a little more palatable. What did you think of Jodorowsky and how he handled that budget in this movie?
1: You know, there's a couple of. uh, larger sort of shots establishing this place where they're filming um, and and especially this canal, I guess is what it is, sure. uh, mm-hmm. that I really liked. And of course, we've already talked about it, but all of the strangeness uh, around this rich character, I really liked a lot of that. After that, nothing, and, and maybe it was because I was too focused on trying to understand what this movie was even supposed to be uh, about to some extent. Uh, But I didn't really notice a lot. I mean, uh, it was very interesting in the John Ross thing we watched when they showed this, like, very fancy, fancy modern alleyway that he turned into, like strewn with debris and having all these like criminals and and market people and stuff yeah, yeah yeah so I guess that aspect of kind of taking stuff that could feel more modern and familiar but turning it into something else is 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 something that I I believe he could do and probably took uh, not a not insignificant part of the budget to transform some of these places into something else but I don't know there's there there weren't as even uh, uh, maybe a handful of I would say at most or or less of images that felt kind of like striking in their own way. And, and not so much that I have like a ready list of like, this moment was unbelievable. It's like, no, I mean, I guess it reminded me of him, but uh, I think your insight, Doug, that it, it, it feels like a director of the time, uh, just being like, I'm going to make something that kind of makes fun of you know, Jodorowsky, it it does, it did nothing about it for me felt like his signature style or anything like that. You know,
0: I do think that there's a detail to the sets in this, that sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, that you can see the budget in that. And I also mentioned before that I do enjoy the final 20 minutes of this film. And that final 20 minutes involves a massive flood hitting the city. And I will say that the way that they brought that to life in terms of the sheer amount of water on display rushing water, and in a way that makes it seem dangerous, I think that that is extremely effective. Maybe to the point where it actually was dangerous. Like, too dangerous for some of these characters. But I do think that the scope of that is something that would have been difficult for Jodorowsky to pull off on a a lower budget. How about you, Julia? Were there any visual moments that particularly stuck out to you?
2: Not particularly beyond the Christopher Lee stuff, I think, yeah, the water stuff's impressive, uh, you know, and, and it made me realize, like, did did Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif really re- read this script and realize that they're going to be down in a sewer in fucking water for a real long time? Because that doesn't sound fun, and I I bet it wasn't fun after a while. Um, but, you know, to me, watching this big action-y flood sequence is so much less interesting than Holy Mountain. Like, anything that he did, and it was so so much less money, right? But it's so more visually striking and that has to do Mm -hmm. a lot with the set design and the costume design and making it look like this otherworldly thing. And this just doesn't feel like that. So it doesn't, there are some elements like you're like, oh, okay, well, there's a a dwarf and and a giant that are friends. That makes sense. That's a very Jodorowsky thing, right? These are, there's little bits of it, but visually just kind of not terribly unique. Julia, why is this movie called The Rainbow Thief? I have no fucking clue, man. I thought it was going to be about the Rainbow Girls, and I got really excited when they showed up. And I was like, hell yeah, he's going to steal some chicks. And then it just went in this whole other direction. So I don't know what, I don't know. He is a thief.
0: He is a thief? Uh, uh, we find out that the, the. By the way, just to remind listeners, the Rainbow Girls are the girls that Christopher Lee invites over to his house. They all arrive in a big van. They're basically my a favorite
2: group of, part of the movie. <laughs> they're,
0: they're, they're all color coded, right? They they come in and and you know they they seem like a lot of fun to be totally honest. Uh, and then we find out at the very end of the movie that uh, that Christopher Lee's character has left all of his money to these women, uh, and and specifically for them to take care of his Dalmatians as well. Uh, so so. Maybe that's supposed to be. It's like a little bit, bit of a joke in that it's it's actually a spoiler
2: built into the title. But um, hmm, I don't know. So shouldn't it, wouldn't it wouldn't it be the Rainbow Thieves then if it's about the girls who are stealing the money? I mean, hey, y- y- you don't need to convince me that it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. Well, then we have a sequel uh, to the Rainbow Thief, which is Rainbow Thieves. Which is about the Rainbow Girls and what they do with this money. See, this is all I want. I mean, I'd, I'd recommend tell?
0: Jodorowsky do that as a comic book, as opposed to a movie. <laughs> uh, but also, just going back to the plot summary that I said at the very beginning of this segment, which suggests that 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 you know that we have this character of Dima literally searching for a pot of gold in the sense of that inheritance, and that the rainbow is supposed to take on some sort of symbolic meaning of him trying to search for the. I don't know, Liam. Why is this movie called The Rainbow Thief? I mean,
1: I similarly don't think I have a good idea. I I guess... I mean, my first thought was like, well, the money is going to go to the Rainbow Girls, so maybe he needs to steal it from them, but that's not in the movie at all. No. So, I Boy. Don't know.
0: <laughs> that would make him a real piece of shit, by the way. <laughs> is it is Is
1: Rainbow meant to describe who he is as a thief in the sense that he doesn't steal rainbows, but he's a thief who represents like hope after the storm, after the flood. Again, you know, if, if anyone is going to remind us, uh, granted, this was probably titled this before Jodorowsky got it. But if anyone was going to remind us that rainbows are actually a symbol of mass murder through flood, I feel like it would be Jodorowsky would be the one to be like, rainbows are very pretty. Remember in the Bible when, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, I, I guess you could see it that way. But it, that so doesn't actually make any sense for the movie itself. It, so it feels... what about,
2: he's like stealing other people's rainbows, right? Like the, the woman who steals the chicken and the Victrola and stuff. Like he's right. stealing their hopes and dreams. Well, How about I that?
1: Mean, honestly, like, again, this is another reach because he didn't write this script. But at some level, it feels like I could see Jodorowsky imagining this movie becoming about the change in the Dima character, that somehow Dima is going to, Go through some sort of transformation, and since so many of his movies are about a transformation, but there doesn't seem to be that kind of transformation at all. Uh, so I don't know, I don't know what that would mean. But it, I, I think the description, the name The Rainbow Thief, doesn't necessarily mean he steals rainbows, but <laughs> it, it simply describes that he is a thief who represents, you know, who is represented by the word rainbow. But that's also not in the movie. There's no connection. Let me put it this way. Other than the flood, which is a serious connection, other than the flood, there is no connection to rainbows in the movie. Rainbow girls. The, yeah, yeah but that's girls. not – that's like two seconds. That's not a real thing.
2: They got it, their car, man. That sweet fucking car. No, they spent a lot, they don't, a lot of money on they,
1: that car. They, they have – other than that moment, which is – by the way – for you as a viewer, if you watch this movie, will be an important moment. It's one of the highlights of the film. And yet, it has nothing to do with the film, really. It's two seconds, and they never really talk about it again until the very end. So I just don't think that rainbow is why the movie would have the word rainbow in the title.
0: Okay, I'm going to talk about the ending just for a second here, and then we're going to move into what we think that this movie, and particularly this ending, is trying to tell us. Because you just mentioned Dima's evolution as a character, his switch, his turn, let's say. What happens is that this city floods, and uh, we find out, Dima finds out that he is not going to be, get part of the inheritance. He leaves Peter O'Toole's character by himself in the sewers. He goes off to catch a train. When he's on that train, he has a crisis of conscience because he realizes this entire city is flooding, that eventually that water is going to fill the sewer and it's going to kill Peter O'Toole. So he goes back. He goes back to save Peter O'Toole From the sewers He brings him through You know He he, he tries to find an escape he, they're, they're going through Like very high water Very high pressure water At one point Peter O'Toole loses The puppet version Of Kronos His dog the, the, Finally they find a way A, a, a portal back to the uh, Through the manhole To the city That they can escape Peter O'Toole Either because he's too exhausted Or because he's just Given up generally Or because he wants to Give a lesson To Dima he, he he lets himself go in the water And he dies Dima climbs up He sits on the edge of the manhole uh, For what seems like hours if not days And then eventually he He's uh, taken away by police officers And kind of kicked out of that area And that's when he sees Kronos Peter O'Toole's dog It's swimming in the water He beckons him near He was horribly depressed when he came out of the manhole But seeing this dog completely changes his perspective the dog, he helps the dog out of the water, they go off together, he never seems more happy than he does in that moment at the very end of the movie, and that is the end of the movie. The water dries up, he goes off with the dog. Liam, what is the message of the Rainbow Thief?
1: Um that you shouldn't try to direct a movie for this much money. And... <laughs> I mean, I I, I wanna I Okay, so basically, based upon the ending, I had no idea what this movie was about. It left me feeling like there was no thought to the f- ultimate goal of the movie. I, Peter O'Toole's sacrifice doesn't feel necessary. The dog thing just seems like a silly thought that doesn't really connect to anything. I, I don't know. I didn't feel in any way connected to or moved by the end of this movie, and I found myself wondering why Jodorowsky would make this movie. And I kind of wondered if this was more of a thing that had less to do with his art and more to do with like his career. Like, like This is him, after the success of Santa Sangre, saying, maybe I can just be a director. Not an artist who uses film to create art, but just a director who does work. Like, maybe I'll just do that. And then this turned him off to that idea forever, <laughs> and it would just would never happen happen again, I guess. I don't know, but man, I just could not I I really like reaching into his films and trying to pull something out fully knowing that I'll never probably grasp exactly what was going on with him and I got nothing. I I felt like I had nothing to hold on to at the end of this movie.
0: Let me tell you my interpretation before I go over to Julia. Uh I know Julia, it seems like you you're kind of, you're pretty negative on this movie generally and I I understand that. I'm only a little bit more positive and mostly because of that Christopher Lee stuff at the very beginning and at least the scope Of the flood at the end my interpretation of this movie is that it's about happiness and the things that make us happy that that's what the christopher lee stuff that he has found a way even though he's very eccentric that you know if you had all that money that's how you would live your life just being totally bizarre right you'd listen to ride of the valkyries while you're riding around on that little robot and you're bringing in all these prostitutes and that you'd let them read stories to you you would just have a great time all the time And I mean, that seems like a very financially motivated stuff, but that you can actually find that in smaller ways in your own life. You have this character of Dima. He's searching for the gold at the end of the rainbow. He's searching for this easy fix. When happiness is actually staring him in the face all the time, that it's in smaller moments, that it's in smaller pleasures in life and in particular that dog is supposed to represent that at the very end that he's able to find pleasure and happiness because you know he doesn't have much nobody in this entire city they all seem to be you know people who are living at, at the lowest means possible but the you know you can still without all that gold in your life with all without all that that um the kind of more distinct pleasures of Christopher Lee's character that you can still find that happiness in and of itself it did still feel like he wasted five years doting on this asshole (laughs) while also being kind of an asshole himself and uh, it doesn't make it feel like it has much weight at the end but i do feel like that is somewhat what it's trying to say that the rainbow thief at the end it's that the rainbow itself has been stolen that that there is no possibility of that quick fix for his financial situation. We even find out at the end that he had money, that he had squirreled away a lot of money that he had, that he could made, have made himself, uh, his position a little bit easier for himself, but that he never wanted to spend it, and that he never really seemed that much happier until he started spending that money. Julia, what did you take away from the ending of The Rainbow Thief?
2: I think that's a very optimistic viewpoint on it. I think that's nice of you. I, I mean, I can see what you mean about that. Uh, it felt... I don't understand. So it seemed to me like uh, uh, Omar Sharif probably would have been better off going to Singapore, I think. Yes. (laughs) You know, then he gets away. He gets to start a new life. It doesn't seem like like life in Poland's all that great. Uh, And Peter O'Toole didn't care if he died, right? Like he seemed, when he found him in the sewer when there's flooding and he's up in his little bed, like he seemed fine. If he was going to die, he didn't seem like he was going to be worried about it. So, and he ended up dying anyway. So it seemed like this kind of, useless thing that it was supposed to be teaching him about you know saving this person but in fact it didn't matter anyway um so i think he should have gone off to singapore and like lived his own life so i i you know yeah he's happy with the dog and he has now he has a friend and that was i think that was the thing that Kronos is going to be a better friend to him than peter o'toole was so it's kind of a happy ending uh, but do i did it make me feel anything no i was just kind of happy it was over <laughs> <And> i feel <laughs> it, I, I feel bad saying that about any jodorowsky movie because of course i want to you know support him but i just don't feel anything for it really
0: i feel but, also that it kind of undercuts the idea of the evolution of the character because at the beginning he does share that fish with the rat right so you know he he's already realized that he can make those connections even if they can't make them with people and at the end he's just doing the same thing again. Maybe it's all supposed to be a circle and maybe no one learns really anything from it as well. Or maybe at the very end we, the, the viewers of this film, are the ones who just didn't learn anything, and, uh, and I feel a little bit bad about that, because I always feel from the other Jodorowsky films that we've watched, including Tusk, and also the comics that we've read by him, that I do have those takeaways. Even if those takeaways are a little inscrutable sometimes, I feel like that there's a brain and a heart at the center of it, and at least half of those things seem to be removed from the core of The Rainbow Thief. I do think <laughs> it's
2: still, please. It is really just interesting to watch from a filmmaking standpoint, right, to, to to try to discern what's wrong with it. And I do think that the editing is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I feel like there there could be more, I don't feel like there's any sense of urgency in the flood, really. Like it should feel harrowing, and it kind of doesn't, even though you're even though you watching these actors going, ooh, that's a lot of water. But as far as the characters go, like, I don't feel like it's a big action-y, like, ooh, I'm on the edge of my seat kind of sequence. So I don't know if that's an editing issue.
0: Even if there was a couple of scenes where there's a suggestion of some affection between Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif, we get none of that whatsoever. We also don't see the development of their relationship at all. So it's at the end, when when Peter O'Toole, you can call it, sacrifices himself when he, when he dies, it, it, it doesn't feel like it has any oomph to it. All it feels like is, like, this guy did all this work to leave the train to come back and save your life. And not only do you not give a shit, that you're just going to die anyway. What was the whole point? I just don't really necessarily understand. Julia, any final thoughts on the Rainbow Thief?
2: I, it made me, I don't know. It made me kind of sad. Uh, it made me feel, it, because it feels kind of middle of the road, which is something that I feel like Joe Dabowski should never feel like, even if you don't like his films, I feel like they always make you feel something, there's always an impact, right, and there's always specifically images that you'll take away from those films, and I feel like besides Christopher Lee, we don't really have that here, so I think you know whenever you know cuz you mentioned Tim Burton and and there is a, a you know Tim Burton doing his Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice is, is amazing but then he gets into Planet of the Apes and that kind of stuff exactly. and like he yeah, loses yeah, he loses himself right where it's not Tim Burton anymore it's just a director for me the the thing I love about directors is when you see a movie and you're like this is a this is a Wes Anderson movie this is a Dario Argento movie. Like you can tell immediately that it's that person. And and I think having Jodorowsky has only really, besides Tusk, done his own work. So to doing an adaptation, I feel like is changes. And I think that we're talking about these things where look, the characters don't have a transformation and like that's not Jodorowsky's fault, that's script's fault. So, you know, blaming him for those kind of things. I think he did probably the best he could with what he had, But again, why you took this project on in the first place. I would rather watch a serial killer Hippopotamus movie. Honestly, (laughs) that sounds way more interesting.
0: (laughs) There is an alternate world where he didn't make The Rainbow Thief, that he did another project that may have also been a big budgeted project. And that was a success. And then you have a dozen more Jodorowsky movies over the next 20 years since then, because the experience would have been so positive. The other element of sadness in what you were just saying is that this killed his love for filmmaking. This ended the for all intents and purposes. If only it's only really the, the the confluence of the documentary and bringing people together, Jodorowsky's doing that documentary later on that brought him back into making films again. But this for for you know fifteen years was the end of his directorial career, and it was because of this movie that it happened. And like that, that's almost unforgivable above almost all other things. Liam, your final thoughts on the Rainbow Thief, and would you recommend it to others?
1: Oh, I certainly would not recommend it, actually.
0: Um, I didn't hate it,
1: but I think that that I did feel largely unaffected by it. And I kind of share some of Julia's sadness, although I'm not as convinced that a director who does have such a strong voice couldn't transition into doing movies that perhaps are less about their vision and more about them serving a larger sort of group thing or a specific script or something. I don't think that's in and of itself a bad idea. And I also think there are plenty of directors who I love who miss the mark for a couple movies and then come back on stride. So Absolutely. there's probably a world where this movie's bad, like it is, and maybe Jordan comes back. But I, I really feel, I really wonder if there was a feeling of like, you know, it's important to remember, it's not just a break between this movie and then the next. This movie was following another break, because there was a break from Tusk to Santa Sangre. Absolutely. And I wonder to what extent um, he realizes that it's just easier for him, not just as a creator, right, but as a person who has how many kids now? Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's right, got right. an entire group of people that he is connected to, and he is trying to foster their creative lives and maybe it just makes sense that like, you know, he thought maybe doing a movie this big would mean he could start making more money, you know, like some of the things that we read suggested that after Tusk, uh, he didn't just stop making movies that he, you know, moved to a position in his life where he was a little more secure financially before he started doing comic books, you know? Um, and so, like, th- there's a feeling. I wonder if this was not just about his creativity, but about his career. And then what he realizes is that. His creativity is far more important than whatever this represented for his career, which, I mean, it didn't represent anything in the end because the movie's bad. But if the movie had been good, but he had had a bad experience making it, he might have still made the same decision to stop making movies because it just seems like he didn't like this feeling he had where he's in charge in theory because he's the director, but he's not really in charge, right? And I think letting go of that was not what he wanted. Um so, yeah, there's a part of me that really mourns that idea, because maybe we could have gotten a ton more amazing movies if he had had a different experience. I just also wonder if that was ever possible, that, like, um, if the world was willing to help fund another Santa Sangre, right? Like, which is, I think, the the that movie, the, it's, there's something about him having to go do other things. But technically speaking, he did talk to about making other movies. He briefly right. was talking about this Marilyn Manson project with That's true. which mm-hmm. thank the fates that that yeah. never happened cuz no I kidding. don't think that was going to work out. Uh but you know, it's there were other things that came along. There was the son son of El Topo thing too, right? Yep. And you know, there was stuff that he was thinking about and and it and it never came about. But um I don't know. It's. I, I guess I shouldn't worry too much that this is so bad because lots of directors I love make a movie that doesn't work for me one off. But it is this feeling of like not doing any other movies. I hope that that was not just the decision based out of this experience, but that there he was also satisfied with what he was doing, which it sounds like also helped a lot of people, right? Like, I don't connect to this psychomagic stuff per se, but it sounds like a lot of people do and did yeah. and still do. And so maybe that meant more in people's lives. I don't know. And that's it's me- work as well. Yeah, yeah. so maybe that. maybe yeah. that's me trying to make a good out of something. But it, it, it helps because I agree with Julia. This movie gives me a lot of sadness, and not just in its content, in what it maybe means in his creative life, you
0: know? It's important to remember that the Jodorowsky that we know now in 2022 isn't the Jodorowsky that the public knew in 1990. And that is something that is reinforced by this documentary program that we watch, which was an episode of a TV show called For One Week Only from the year 1990 presented by Jonathan Ross. Now, Jonathan Ross is a very, very famous TV presenter in the UK. I've seen him on chat shows and things like that. He's basically, boy, I don't know if there's a, this is a, a direct comparison that works, and I apologize if this doesn't work for you. He's sort of like a Jay Leno-ish character. He does a lot of late night talk shows and just talk shows generally, But when I was getting into cult movies and horror movies in the 1990s, I knew him from The Incredibly Strange Film Show, which is a show that he presented in the late 80s and early 90s, which focused on directors like John Waters and David Lynch and Sam Raimi. Like he was he was and continues to be a massive horror and cult movie fan. Also a very controversial figure, but we're not going to get into that. This was a roughly 40-minute long program presented from 1990. It was made right after the production of The Rainbow Thief. We actually see a, a scene being edited in process uh, in, in this documentary. It's mostly about Santa Sangre, but it also goes through the entire career of Jodorowsky. And what's interesting about that is that I never really considered that Jodorowsky at that time would not be... A, would not be very well known, I guess I would have considered that, but B, that his career at that point was would be seen so differently. As mentioned in this program, Fondo Elise at this point was considered a lost movie, that you could not get a copy whatsoever. El Topo was the movie he was known for because it was the original Midnight movie and because of its um, its reputation, particularly in New York. When they talk about the Holy Mountain in this, it's as an ambitious failure not as a very interesting movie whatsoever. It's almost entirely dismissed. And then Santa Sangre is supposed to be, oh, wow, this is what this is the guy. He, this is the guy who made Santa Sangre. It's what he's best known for. And one of the things that's most interesting and also a little bit distressing about watching this program is that it is not overly complimentary about, about Jodorowsky, that, that he is uh, considered a difficult person and difficult artist. And even in the interviews, he can be a pretty, um, he's, he's very aggressive in regards to his answers sometimes, but it's also very interesting, particularly because they, they, uh, interview, they, Jonathan Ross interviews Dennis Hopper, Marcel Marceau about his early mime career, which we haven't really had much insight into. Mobius himself, he gets to talk to. So it's really fascinating. I want to just get your general thoughts, both of you, starting with you, Julia, what did you think of this uh, episode of, uh, for one week only?
2: I thought it was really well done and really interesting to hear what everybody else had to say about him and, and people like Dennis Hopper talks about, you know, he's very, very smart, uh, but very manipulative and not sure if I like that guy. Like he yeah. really just says that, right? I was like, oh, okay. This, that's pretty intense. Uh, so I think not just showing him as this kind of film guru as as we think of him, but as just, just a kind of volatile person and director who sometimes fails, right? Yeah. Um, and I think just watching him, he, you know, I think he seems very casual in this, and and very open to answering any kind of question. And as we mentioned, uh, seeing Cristobal being so happy about his Santa sangre success, uh, and and having watching him do his his hand movement stuff that Isn't he does, it and looking amazing. looking so happy about it, like he just, you know, I, I think I always think of the Jordan Rowski clown as very serious people, and I think to see them like smiling and happy is is joyous to me.
0: There are hints when we see him on set and him talking about the Rainbow Thief about the difficulties. But as Leah mentioned earlier, there's also a suggestion that he seems to be, he seems to be having a pretty good time with it. And we have Omar Sharif talking about how, you know, he doesn't, he says that he doesn't consider Jodorowsky a filmmaker, that he's an artist, right? And that, that, that's, he's very happy to be working with an artist like that. And you can tell, I think they, they had a pretty positive relationship working together. It's, It's, it would have been interesting if this documentary footage really gave way to, oh my God, he's, having a terrible time making this, and that would have given us a little bit more insight. But at the time, it didn't seem like this was going to be the disaster that it ended up turning into. Liam, what did you think of this program?
1: Yeah, I really appreciated the, I mean, it was well put together, but I also really appreciated the insight to what this program thought was necessary for people to know. Like this, I assume this functions as a way to introduce a lot of people who maybe don't know a lot about uh, Yodorowski to sort of get them into caring about him. So it's interesting what they was chosen to be presented. And then I agree with you, Doug. I was really surprised to hear sort of a lukewarm take on Holy Mountain, which is for me, such an important movie. It Did you find really... it
0: interesting that the El Topo producer kept calling it the magic mountain instead of the yes, holy mountain?
2: Yes, that was also very strange.
1: <laughs> that, yeah. I, I kept laughing. And also I whole thing is like, it was too much. It was too much. And I'm like, I know so many people for whom that's the movie uh that it's it's it it was interesting to hear that you know um but i
0: agree and that that people in new york at the time thought of it as a disappointment because they they a lot of them thought of el topo as this life-changing movie and then they saw the holy mountain it's like oh that's what this is and even it feels like like even maybe jonathan ross agrees with that when they show the clip and stuff it's almost like they're mocking it a little bit
1: Oh, yeah. It really feels like they think uh, the vibe of the show is that, well, this is, you know, I I don't I think if it wasn't for Santa Sangre, he would not be doing this episode on. Yodorowsky. Like, I That's think right. it's Santa Sangre that makes him feel like it's worth returning to this person that maybe we thought was gone from the world of filmmaking, uh, which is interesting. It's an interesting take and not something I would have expected at all. And I agree with you guys. Seeing Crystal Ball was just joyful, like, seeing the ways that he was expressing himself. And I don't know, it just made me really happy. And to think about that, that like, I, I was too young at the time to know that there was so much excitement around Santa Sangre, that it was such an, you know, that, that that there was that kind of response to it. Even though I've heard about it since, I didn't know that it kind of hit that way at the time, you
0: know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just it being such a widely available movie of Jodorowski just it raised his profile to such an extent well it directly led to him getting this gig that maybe destroyed his entire filmmaking career for a very long amount of time but I'm sure we'll talk about the gap between films a lot in our upcoming episodes I do want to say by the way we'll put the link to this program this Jonathan Ross program uh in the show notes today there's also some really interesting interview footage with Jodorowski, particularly talking about something that we've actually mentioned before which is that he saw his work on Santa Sangre as him working out some of his issues with women. He has some very controversial quotes in regards to it, but basically saying that that violence against women was something that he was very into, basically right up until the point that he finished making Santa Sangre, and then he had no interest in that anymore. And that's something that he kind of cited in those interview segments that we talked about earlier, that after Santa Sangre... All people wanted him to do was to make movies, like horror movies, about women getting killed. And he just didn't have any interest in that anymore. Still, some uh, interesting quotes about violence that come earlier in that program as well. Very interesting to watch and very well put together, as both of you said. That's all I have to say. About 1990s, the Rainbow Thief. It is currently available to view in the United States on the Tubi streaming network. I think it may also be on Amazon Prime. I don't know that for sure, but it is commonly available. This is another movie in Jodorowsky's career where its uh, distribution has been very inconsistent. We're we, we're so lucky to live in a world where it's no problem these days to find Fondo Elise and El Topo and The Holy Mountain and Santa Sangre. But you know, this is a this is someone's career that it's still kind of spotty. That Tusk is still not easily available. In fact, it's very difficult to find. Rainbow Thief is is easier to see. And the version that we saw, compared certainly to the Tusk version that we all watched, is is perfectly good, right? Sound is good, video is very, very good. So it is available in uh, whatever uh, limitations that that movie has at this point. It's not in the version that is currently accessible to people. Uh, It just might be something that never made it to the final version. On the next episode of Jodowowski, hey, Jodorowsky's taken a little bit of a break from movie making. (laughs) We're gonna investigate what else he's been up to. It's something we've teased a little bit, certainly since our last episode on comic books. Uh, The Incall is maybe the most beloved work uh, of comics that uh, Jodorowsky has worked on. Well, there's one that's right up there, one that people talk about all the time, and that is the saga of the Meta Barons, which he worked on from 1992, so really in this this same time period, right up until 2003. We're not gonna be talking about all the spin-off series at this point, the ideas that we may re- may return to them in the future. We are going to talk about the central eight volumes Metabaran series. It's going to be plenty for us to talk about. Uh, we I think as a group are not very familiar with the content of this outside of uh what the Metabaran content in the Incall was. Meta Barons, or the saga of the Meta Barons, is a science fiction comic series relating the history of a dynasty of perfect warriors known as the Meta Barons. The Meta Barons series was written by creator Alejandro Dorowski and illustrated by Argentinian artist Juan Jimenez. Juan unfortunately passed away from COVID at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, but we're uh, certainly going to be talking about his artwork over the course of this episode as well. Julia, are you excited to dive into the Meta Barons?
2: Yeah. More comics to explore. <laughs> it's just—it's just exciting. When it's a—it's a whole new world, and for me to feel like I'm finally can say that I'm getting into comics a bit now, which has always yeah. been a very, very daunting thing to me since it's such a huge world, and to get into it via one of my favorite creators is delightful. So I'm just hoping that the art will be good, <laughs> I'm and I'm already, sure it will be.
0: <laughs> I—I've I, looked a little bit into it so far, and I have to say because we have yeah, you know, reasonable concerns after our last episode where some of the artwork and some of what we were reading was quite out there and a little difficult to follow uh the artwork and the work that i've seen so far has been absolutely outstanding
2: and, awesome. and reminiscent
0: wait. of mobius while still being very very different in terms of style so i'm looking forward to to ex- to really experiencing that in some detail and there's a lot of it to experience uh liam uh, I, what are your thoughts on the meta barons we're basically giving it our all on the next episode
1: well, as I shared before, it's one of the few things I had read ahead of time. That's before. right, you did not in a, that in a collected form, but uh, a bunch of the heavy metal issues that my stepdad had had, uh, you know, the the segments of Meta Barons that would eventually be collected into the larger book. So I am somewhat familiar with the art and the themes, but I'll tell you what, it wasn't enough of it that I really know what's going on. I mean, in reality, this is part of the in-call world, yeah. and I was reading this long before I knew what the in-call was. So I think the context needed to really dive in and understand what I was reading at the time. I was probably like 15, 16 when I was reading it. Uh, I didn't have it. So I think now, at knowing more about the larger context and also about uh Jodorowsky as a writer I'm, I'm I'm kind of excited and hoping that it's as good as I remember it because I remember at the time even though I was only reading these shorter bits in these issues thinking it seemed really interesting and wanting to know more but not having the resources at the time to just go buy a, a ton of heavy metals just to like yeah, catch yeah, yeah. up you know
0: the scope of it seems absolutely massive the series takes place over the course of several generations and chronicles the life of each of the five meta the stories depict a space opera reminiscent of greek tragedy and heavily influenced by frank herbert's dune novels jodorowsky had been in the early stages of making a dune film in the 1970s so yeah so more dune influence more of the ideas that he may have uh, been putting together for that film project uh coming out in the meta which we will be going into in a lot of depth on the next episode of jodorowsky and i have to say personally very very excited Uh, about that Julia we already mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, you uh, you've been extremely busy you have some uh, screenings that are going to be coming up I don't know if you can talk about any of those necessarily but uh, what's going on with uh, your work in the world and what's going on with I know what you need coming up in the near future
2: so it's just uh, waiting to hear from film, so film festivals, really, right. is uh, what's happening with the, with the film. Um, other than that, I have my podcast horror movie, Survival Guide, which is still cruising along. We have a lot of great interviews and stuff. Uh, of course, it's October, so there's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of delightful horror content coming out, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm also going to be programming at the Somerville Theater uh, leading up to Halloween in Boston. If you want to come out, I will be there for that. And I'm programming uh, several double features of incredible, cool horror movies. So what better way to spend Halloween than in a horror, watching horror movies in an audience? Uh, It's the best thing.
0: It is. It is absolutely the best thing. And it's something that I'm hoping I get a little time to do before the end of this month. Uh, If you are a representative of a film festival, hey, you can reach out to Julia as well through her various social medias.
2: Julia, where are you on Twitter? I am at Julia C. Marchesi on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok.
0: Yeah, and you people need to get to her and get that yeah. movie out into the world so people can celebrate it and we can be celebrating it. And I can't wait to see it myself. I'm looking forward to it very much as I mentioned again and again. Liam O'Donnell, I know you've been very busy recording podcasts, young man. Uh, where mm-hmm. can people find your work and where can people find you online?
1: Oh, well, of course, they can find uh, everything I'm working on over at CinePunks.com. That's c i n e p o n xcom uh, Also, of course, the latest episodes of this podcast, as well as a whole family of podcasts, including Twitch of the Death Nerve, uh, The Carnage Report, Shameless Picture Show, Fat Girl Hacks, uh, the uh, horror business, a bunch of stuff over there, uh, and, and merch as well, and some writing. Uh, they can follow CinePunks on social media, uh, at c i n e p u n x on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, we're also going to be launching a Discord uh, soon. So if you're on Discord and you want to come in and talk to some like-minded film freaks uh, and other people, uh, we'd like that as well. Um, And we uh, have a Patreon for CinePunks where we have finally been adding a bunch of new stuff. Me and Doug did uh, 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 a conversation about the Misfits album Walk Among Us we have a new one coming up relatively soon hopefully we'll get that done and then me and Josh from Cinepunks have been recording uh, some regular conversations and putting them up up on the Patreon so head on over to patreon.com backslash Cinepunks to check that out and of course if people are interested in the archive of the various things we've covered on Cinema Smorgasbord whether that's Joe Jodowowski or uh, Praising Kane or Carol Kane podcast or uh, How Do You Do Fellow Kids or Steve Buscemi podcast whether Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, our, our podcast exploring the career of Vic Diaz, <laughs> a bunch of stuff we do. They can head on over to cinemasmorgasbord.com uh, to dive into that. There's It's all arranged by topic. If you are only interested in Eric Roberts, you can find all the Eric Roberts episodes. If you're <laughs> only interested in, uh, in our ep- uh, episodes exploring uh, film festivals, you can you can find those
0: specifically. Yeah, you can find it over at cinemasmorgasport.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg, that's S-M-O-R-G. You can find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z, and I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Those, of course, are also linked over at cinemasmorg.com. If you are enjoying what you're listening to, why don't you uh, uh, leave us a review on your prog- podcast provider of choice, or why don't you just tell a friend? That's always the best way for other people to find out about Cinemasmorg.com and Joe Dawowski in specific. But for now, we need to take a break. We need to rest up a little bit through the remainder of October, because soon we need to crack open these comic books and get a reading. Lots to do on the next episode, The Meta Baron's Saga. Good night, everybody. Night,
1: night. (laughs)